you'd have your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 3, that's where we'll be spending most of our time. At this point, we're dismissed the kindergartners and first graders. And so, as they leave, if you haven't been here, or uh, it's been a week or two, we're going through now our second series in the book of Mark. The first series was Uncovering Jesus. So we looked at chapters 1 and 2, and basically we're trying to ask this question, who is Jesus, and what did Jesus say about himself in these opening chapters, or what did Mark say about Jesus in the opening chapters, and then... Chapters 3, 4, and 5, we're asking this question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? So we've started out last week looking at the disciples and that they've been called people. And then we're going to go through the next few chapters saying, okay, they've been called, they've been especially brought to Christ. But what does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And the question that we're asking here today is, what does it mean to be with Jesus? See, that was the first requirement in Mark chapter 2. What we found in Mark chapter 3 was that the disciples were called, and what was the very first thing they were called to do? That was to be with Jesus. And we read last week from Acts chapter 4, when the disciples came, or Peter and John specifically came before the rulers and the elders of the church or of the synagogue, they looked at Peter and John and they were saying, What makes them so different? And they were trying to figure out, is it some sort of intelligence that makes them different? No, they're unschooled. Is it some sort of history that they have? No, they're ordinary. And then they took note of this. This is what turned the heads of the elders and the disciples, or uh, the elders and the rulers, is that the apostles had been with Jesus. That's, That's what separated Peter and John out, that they had been with Jesus. So for the first century apostle to be with Jesus is, okay, you stand around him, you follow around. But what does it mean for the 21st century disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And as I thought about that, I wanted to look into what Paul was writing back to the churches in the first century Because these were people who hadn't had a chance to physically be with Jesus. So he was going to encourage them in some way, being with Christ, even though they couldn't be with him just like Peter and John had been. And we're going to look at it in three different things. It's set on your outline. First, to be with Jesus means to set your mind. The first thing is you've got to set your mind. You've got to think about Jesus. The second thing is you've got to put certain things into practice. Paul says to the Colossians, you've got to put some things to death and you've got to put some new things on like a garment. And we'll talk about that. So being with Jesus is going to first mean setting your mind. What does that mean? We'll talk about that in a moment. And then you've got to put some things to death. You've got to take some things out of your closet and you've got to put some new things into your closet. And then there's a gauge, I believe, that Paul is giving us in the last part of what we read. How well are you doing in those areas? How well are you in just spending time with Jesus, with being with Jesus? And the gauge is the peace of Christ rules in your heart. So let's start there. Setting your heart 
and mind in on Jesus. Let's look at Colossians 3, verse 1. If then, notice that, if then, or since then, or therefore, you have been raised with Christ. Now, this is something that Paul does pretty frequently in his letter writing. We talked about this specifically when we went through the book of Ephesians. Remember the first, there was a first half of the book, and then there was a second half of the book. Same thing is happening here with Colossians. The first half of the book of Colossians is going to talk about doctrine. Here's what you need to know about what happened, who Jesus Christ is, who you are in Christ. Chapter 1 and 2. And then the second half, if then or therefore, now that you understand this, then this is how your life should reflect that. In Ephesians, we took, took care of the same thing. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 talked about this really heavy doctrine, this very meaty, substantial stuff. And once we've understood that, once we've internalized it, then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 is the turning point. Therefore... Now that you know that, now walk in a manner worthy of your high calling. Paul does the exact same thing in Romans. Romans 1 through 11, all this doctrine, and then Romans 12, 1. Therefore, therefore, this turning point to say, now we don't want to conform any longer to the patterns of the world. We want to be transformed. Well, how are we going to be transformed? By looking back and reflecting on what God has done. And so Paul does that here in Colossians, since then. Now, the one thing I want to point out here and why it's very helpful is that this approach is actually very different than a typical worldview approach, both in your job situations or in worldview religion. The typical sort of approach is you perform and then there's a verdict. You go to school and you perform. You take a test, you take in some knowledge, you put it back on a sheet of paper, you perform, and then your teacher, does she not, she gives you the verdict. She doesn't grade the test, she just tells you what you've earned on the test. Same thing in your job situation. You perform and then there's a verdict. And what Paul is doing here, he doesn't want to have any any confusion, and this is a very important point, so I want you to hear this. The verdict is in. The verdict is in. Now the performing starts. If you think Christianity is performing and then hoping for a verdict, you've got to completely turn around. And what Paul is trying to say is the verdict is in. Now, now that you understand that, since then, therefore, you look back and reflect on the, the verdict is done. Now, oh, if the verdict is done, I can perform in a totally different way. But if I have to perform hoping for God to love me, then I'm going to act a totally different way. That's so important. Before we get going forward about thinking about being with Jesus, I'm afraid that you would leave thinking, here are some things I've got to do. And if I do them well, then God's going to love me. Not true. Paul is saying the verdict is in. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Colossians 2, 13. And you... You people of Colossae, you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead. You, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't perform in any meaningful way. Okay? And then, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal commands. He set aside it, nailing it to the cross. That's the verdict. It is finished. It's complete. Everything's done. And then verse 16, therefore, now that you know everything is done, your salvation isn't going to be based on your performance. Paul saying in verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, a festival, new moon, Sabbath. All those things are just shadows of things to come. There's no condemnation now. Nobody can pass judgment on you from the outside. You shouldn't even be judging yourself, Paul is saying, because the verdict is in. It's complete. Everything about your salvation is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not wrapped up in you or your performance or your holiness. It doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with Christ and Christ alone. I'm afraid that uh, sometimes it gets communicated and thought inaccurately, and that's why I'm hammering this point home, that Christianity, its sum and substance, starts with Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. That Christianity and its sum and substance starts with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Walk, therefore. That the sum and substance of Christianity really starts and ends with Romans 12.1. Do not be conformed any longer. That's the outworking of what has happened. That's not the sum and substance of what we're talking about here. And people in the New Testament that communicated it in a backwards fashion that you had to do something. And then you earn something. Jesus called those people Blind guides. Well, Paul is not a blind guide, so he's spent his first two chapters talking about what it is we need to know about Christ and what it is we need to know about ourselves. And then since then, since our hope of glory doesn't rest on ourselves or our behavior, it rests on Christ, then we can move forward. I wonder if you think that. That your salvation really is based on what Christ has done alone. Or do you have to make a little tiny contribution? He's depending on you in some small but meaningful way. You're going to have a different life, a different worldview if that's the place that you start. All right, so we're going to get here to verse 2, the point that we're trying to drive at. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The, in the Greek, the word set means to exercise or entertain your mind. All right, so this is an exercise. This is mental aerobics. You're setting your mind. You're entertaining your mind. What comes into your mind is things about Christ. And if you don't know what those things are, you can go back to Colossians 1 and 2. You can go back to uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. You can go back to Romans 1 through 12. Those are the things that he wants us to set our minds on. And I think this is unusual because this uh, idea of starting with thinking, because typically when you think about Christianity, sort of in a, in a popular worldview, Christianity is sort of a non-thinking 
religion. I mean, you kind of have to check your brains at the door. Uh, You've given up thinking for faith. And that's exactly opposite of what Paul is asking the people to do. The first thing he's saying, being with Jesus, the first requirement is to think. Think about these things. Entertain them in your mind. Roll them over and over and over again. We have to be people who are thinking. The second thing is that typically if you have an issue or a problem, the, the remedy is five easy steps. Three things you should do. The eight steps to path to... And that's pretty typical. You pick up a women's magazine or something on the shelf and you've got some kind of stress or anxiety and it's got the three or five or eight ways you can get to happiness. And you see what Paul is saying? Before you begin any steps, think. Don't do something first. First, think. Think about Christ. Think about what he's done. And so in Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies, Paul says, you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has brought you back by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in the sight without blemish and free from accusation. Think about that. What does it mean to be free from accusation? Accusation from yourself, accusation from others, accusations from God Almighty. There is now no condemnation because of what Christ Jesus has done. So we want to think, we want to entertain in our minds. What does that really mean? How deep is that? How wide is that? How high is that? How long is that? We need to start with thinking about those things. Philippians 4 You know this verse, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what should you do? Think about those things. Entertain them. Put them in your mind. Exodus 20 is the place where the Ten Commandments are most often referred to. And just before Moses writes down the Ten Commandments, he has this verse. It says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And I think that's, this is significant for this reason. I'm going to give you ten things I want you to do or uphold. But before that, I want to insert this little thing. For you to think about, I am the Lord God, you are not. Think about that. You're not in control. I am the Lord God, and you are not. And I have brought you out of slavery. You didn't bring yourself. I didn't help you get here. I brought you the entire way. That's grace. You see, now that we, that we understand, we're not God. We're not the center of the universe. Everything doesn't revolve around us. I've thought about that. And I want to remember what He's done for me. He's brought me the whole way. 
Now that I understand those things, how should I live? Well, here Moses says, here are the ten things you can start with. And think about the first and second commandments. You know what these are? You should if you don't. But I'll give them to you. The first commandment is you should have no other gods before me. The second is you should have no idols. So what are the two options? Let's just think for a moment. What are the two options for everybody? This isn't just for the Israelites. This is a law for everyone. What are the two options now available for everyone? You can either have me, the true God, as your focus, or you can have something else. What does that eliminate? What it eliminates is that you can't have no God. Something is your God. And that is whatever you think about. Whatever entertains your mind, whatever occupies your mind, that's what you're going to find yourself worshiping. And so you're a seeker here and you say, well, you know, I don't really serve a God. I'm neutral. The Exodus 20 indicates that you're not neutral. There is no neutrality. Something is driving your life. It's the thing that occupies your mind. It's that which you're thinking about. What occupies your time, you're entertaining it over and over and over again in your mind. That's what you're going to end up worshiping. That's what your life is going to revolve around. And that can be yourself or somebody else. And if you're a believer, this should be a great warning. It's very easy to worship something else. We can't just say, well, I worship God. I guess I'm okay. Well, I hope you do worship God. But it's so easy for us to worship something else. And there's a great warning here that we have to be careful of. Remember in Matthew chapter 6 when we talked about this for finances? Christ was telling the uh, disciples in uh, the Sermon on the Mount that they should store up treasures for themselves in heaven. I always thought that was interesting. You're supposed to store things up for yourself. And then he gives this little illustration which doesn't seem to fit at first, and we talked about this. If, if, the, if the eye is the lamp of the body and it is good, then the whole body is good. And you think, okay, we're storing up treasures for self, and then you've got this eye illustration. I mean, how do these things connect? Remember what we talked about? It says, if the eye is good or healthy, and in the Greek, that word means single. If you have a single eye... If what's entering your mind is one single thing, I've focused all of my attention on one thing, then the rest of your life is going to operate fine. But it's when your eyes try to focus on more than one thing, two things or three things, then it becomes blurry. Remember, we don't want to walk out any choice of four or five doors over there. We want our eyes to focus on the one door we should choose. 
And your eye is going to end up saying, this is the most important. You've probably done this as a kid. I'm not suggesting you all do it right now in the middle of the service, but you can do it at home. You point your finger to a corner. Have you ever done this? You just point your finger up to the corner and eventually your finger points right to the corner. And then how do you figure out which eye is dominant? Well, you close one of them and you figure out, okay, that's the dominant eye because it's always pointing in the corner. And then when you close the other one, it's like, you know, a few feet off. You've done this? Don't do it in the next few minutes, all right? And what you find out is which eye is dominant? Which one wins the battle? What do you think about? What does your mind entertain? What constantly comes up in your mind? If you're just laying in bed, what, what occupies your time? If you're just driving around and you don't have the radio on, what do you find yourself sort of thinking about? That's very likely what you worship. It's dominating. It's the thing that your eye is focused in on most. And Paul is saying here, we've got to set our minds. We've got to have to, we have to have one eye, one eye for Christ alone. The other thing I think that's important about this setting your mind is it's a command that Paul is giving us. He isn't saying Jesus Christ is going to set your mind. And you sort of passively sit by hoping he's working. He's saying you set your mind. Apparently, once the Holy Spirit has come in us, since then, since we understand what's happened, then there's a power, there's a living power in us that now we have the option of setting our minds. Now listen to these verses, and you can just jot them down. You don't have to go to them right now. Very important. Hebrews 11.24 By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. What? He chose to be mistreated instead of the pleasures of sin. Well, how did he make this choice? He goes on to say, he regarded, he took an account, he thought, and listen to what he thought of, Moses. He thought that the disgrace for the sake of Christ was greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Moses, Moses was thinking about Jesus Christ When he was in Pharaoh's house. Now think about that. I won't answer that for you. I'll just let you think about it. And he was thinking and saying, Christ is more valuable than the pleasures of sin. And so if you're wrestling with sin in your life and you're saying, what's more pleasurable? Which one do I want more? You've got to set your mind on Jesus Christ. He's got to dominate. He's got to be the eye that wins out. Luke chapter 10, you know this, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and you're upset about many things. 
But only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen. You see, Mary and Martha walked into the same house. They had the same life. They felt the same urgings, the same responsibilities, the same anxieties. And one of them said, well, all these anxieties are consuming me and I've got to get all this done first. And she was frustrated with Mary because Mary chose. It doesn't mean Mary didn't see that there were things that needed to be done. It just means that she said, but only one thing is necessary. I've set my eye on this one thing and then it's going to control everything else that I do. They're real competitors for Martha and Mary and Moses. There's real competitors for your time. You know what they are. They fight. It's like a war. And you have to set your mind on Christ. To be with Christ is to set your mind on Him. To think about the things that He has done. And this is going to be difficult for us. It was difficult for the disciples. Remember when Peter, remember when Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. This is in the northern part of Israel. And Peter makes his great confession. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're right, Peter. And then right after that, Jesus begins to tell them in no uncertain terms that the Son of Man must suffer. And what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Well, he says, get behind me, Satan. But what does he say before that? You have something in your mind, Peter. You've set your mind on the things of men, not on the things of God. Gosh, what a powerful verse. Here's my guess. You're sizing up the situation in your life and you're just saying, this must be the right thing. I set my mind on it. Everyone would tell me this is the right thing. Would Jesus Christ say that's the right thing? Have you set your mind on him and him alone? Or do you have in mind the things of men? Now, I can hear some of you saying this already. Paul, if you think Peter had a bad mind, then you don't know my mind and the troubles I've seen. I mean, in my mind, sin's kind of like the trick birthday candle. I feel like I blow it out and then, you know, with the same equal force, as soon as I turn around, boom, it snaps back. And I go back and say, well, I guess I need to blow it out one more time. And, and the sin in my life just keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back. I can't get rid of it. It's in my mind. And Paul offers some help, not completely here. There are other things we can think about. But look in chapter 3, verse 16. Here's help for the mind who has sin in it that's like the trick birthday candle. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word dwell in you richly. This picture is a picture of a home. Your mind should be at home in the word of the Lord. That's where it should feel most comfortable. 
I'm just so familiar. I'm so comfortable. It's, it's like a home. I mean, when I'm giving you my advice, I'm feeling kind of shaky. I'm feeling uncomfortable because, I mean, this is just the things of men. I mean, it could be right or it could be wrong. But here, oh gosh, I got some great comfort for you. I'm, I'm at home here. This is where I feel most comfortable talking from and talking into your life. And I wonder if the Word of God is the most comfortable place for you. Or are your words the most comfortable place for you? Or are your counselor's words the most comfortable place for you? Or your spouse's words, are they the most comfortable place? Is that what you're following? You see, Jesus had a great distressful time in his own life, the 40 days in the wilderness. And he had all these pressures. And what did he do? He went home. He went home. Even in the wilderness, he went home. He went back and he repeated back the words of the Lord. Oh gosh, this is a stressful time. I just better go home. Don't you want that in your life? You have this real stressful time. And what you want, even if you don't have it in your mind, I just want to go home. I just want a place where I can be comfortable. That's the word of the Lord. It should dwell in you richly. It occupies your time. It's your single focus. You speak out of it. You run to it. You live in it. It happens in three ways, and this is another sermon, but I wanted to just draw your attention to it. And I, because I thought it was so interesting. Let it dwell in you richly by these ways. Teaching. Admonishing one another. So it's not just a, it's not just me telling you something. You've got to be in a community. And then what's the last thing? This is really my favorite part. Singing. Why? Because when you go home, you might remember something that I said. I hope you remember something I say. But I can tell you what is going to be most impactful. Let all who are thirsty. You are a shield about me. I'm, I'm running those songs through my mind. I'm remembering that my heart before Christ could unfold like a flower. That's another sermon. But if you're struggling mentally, I want to ask you if you're in a place. Are you in a place that people are drawing you back to the Bible? If you're out there on your own, you're in trouble. Okay, we have to put to death and we have to put on. We also have to move on in this sermon. All right, so we got the second thing. We're putting death and we're moving on. We, we've seen that there's this, been this divine initiative. We talked about that. He's done something. The verdict is in. Now we can perform. Secondly, we've set our minds on Christ. That's what we've just been talking about. And then finally, third... Being with Christ, therefore, is going to require putting some things to death and putting some things on. This is not the place that you start in your relationship with Christ. It doesn't start here, but you do get here. 
You've got to put some things to death and you have to put some things on. And I want to focus in on two words in the text because there's quite a list of them here. Starting in verse five, you can read through that yourself. But look at verse five and circle or underline or just have your eyes drawn to evil desire. We're going to have to put to death. Therefore, evil desire. The reason I draw our attention to this is because when we naturally think evil desire, what do you think? A desire that's evil. I mean, it's not a trick question. You just think there's something that's evil and I kind of have a desire for it and I got to put that to death. Well, you do. But that's not what this is talking about. There's really not a great word here in the English language. and It actually means a harmful overlonging. The evil desire Paul is talking about is a harmful overlonging. You have a natural longing for something. It's normal. It's a good desire. But it's gotten bloated. And it's sort of become consuming. And now what's good has gone bad because I've extended it out to be bigger than it should be. C.S. Lewis does such a great job of drawing a picture of this in the book, The Great Divorce. These people come out of hell and then they meet somebody in heaven. They're ghost figures and they meet a solid person and the solid person comes and talks to them. And he does this very well with these two particular women, one who has, is looking for her husband and one woman who is a mother who's looking For her son. And so they come and they meet not their husband or their son. They meet somebody else that they know and they have conversations about their husband and son. And this is what the women say. You have no right to keep him from me. Give him back to me. I did my best to make him happy. I sacrificed my whole life for him. You see what Lewis is saying? They had a natural, God-given desire for their son or for their husband. But what happened? It got bloated. It began to expand in a way it's not meant to expand. A son and and a husband can't meet all the needs that only Christ can. But yet these two women come looking for that. And they come right to the gate of God Almighty, and they're looking for their husband, or they're looking for their son. And at the end of one of the chapters, the woman who's looking for her husband, her, her vocabulary sort of speeds up. She gets sort of more agitated. And you know, if you get angry sometimes, you just keep speaking faster and faster and faster. And she's speaking to this, this solid person, faster, faster, faster. And then Lewis says this at the end, it says, the ghost or the woman which had towered up like a dying candle flame, suddenly snapped. And a sour, dry smell lingered in the air for a moment. And then there was no more ghost. You see, a natural longing can get overextended like a balloon. And it becomes too big. And then when it pops, it's like you just don't exist anymore. 
My whole life got wrapped around something else or someone else. It's good in a small way, but it's gotten bloated. And I wonder if you have a harmful over-desire. It's a good thing. It's not an evil thing. Those things are kind of easy to pick off. They may be hard to conquer, but you can say, I really shouldn't have that. But you have something that's natural, that's now extended. It's bloated in an unnatural way. I think that's why Paul says in Philippians 2, I've learned to be content in all situations. I mean, what a prayer I would have for you. I'm not saying you couldn't be hurt. I'm not saying you couldn't weep. Christ wept when he wanted things to happen and they didn't happen. But you see, they didn't become bloated. They didn't become overextended. And Paul is saying, you know what, I have some real desires, but in the end, I've learned to be content. Because for me to live is Christ. You hear that? I've got a single eye. I'm not saying I don't have disappointments. But I have a single eye. I have a single focus. I've set my mind on Christ. Being with Jesus here, an evil desire needs to be replaced in verse 10 and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. It's like a closet. And I want you to think of it this way. You have this closet and you've got to take some old things out of your closet. If you were my wife, you would understand this illustration really well. You go into my closet and you say, you've had that since you were in college. It's time to get rid of that. And I go, oh, that's my favorite thing. I can't get rid of it. I know I haven't worn it in 20 years. I can't fit into it. But by golly, I'm going to one day, so let's keep it in here. Right? You have all those sorts of feelings. And now something has happened. Since then, the glory of Christ has come into your life. It's, it's something you can't even imagine. Then you walk back into the closet of your life and you look with Christ's glory saying, you know what? Some of this has to go. It's time to get rid of this. It might be time to get rid of your whole closet. But I I don't want you to become overwhelmed because you don't fill up your closet all at once as a Christian. You just put one good garment in at a time. So it's okay if somebody's closet might be a little bit more full than yours. We're not doing it on a comparison basis. You just say, hey, I just need to know about this one thing. That's I'm just trying to put this one nice piece of clothing in one at a time. And then day after day... And week after week, and year after year, then you have this whole closet. You have this richness about your life that somebody can enter in. You can say, yes, that's exactly what I thought. And, but I put on this new garment and I can tell you something different. Why? I'm not telling you what I think anymore. I'm going back to the knowledge that I have in the scriptures and telling you about Christ. All right, let's go to the last point. A gauge. How do you know if you've do, you're doing this well? How do you know if you've set your mind on Christ? If you've really begun to take some old things out and put some new things in? And I want to use the peace of Christ here in the last verse as a gauge. 
A peace that comes from Christ, not from circumstances. See, if you've set your mind on health, if you've set your mind on wealth, if you've set your mind on a relationship, if you've set your mind on some sort of idea or concept, if you set your, set your mind on any of those things, those things are not going to satisfy. And you're going to say, when it doesn't come through, I don't have any peace. I've lost my peace. And I'm going to say to you, I don't think you've lost your peace. I think that's just a gauge. And the gauge is telling me that what you've really lost is your mind. Your mind is set on something else. And so when you say, I don't have any peace, and I'm going to say, do you know Jesus Christ? And if you say no, I'm going to say, you're right, you don't. But if you say, yes, I know Christ, but I still don't have peace, then I'm going to say, you've lost your mind. Focus your attention on Jesus Christ. Look what he's done for you. He's brought me out of slavery. I was a prisoner. I had no hope. I was dead. I was blind. Peace with Christ is a gauge to say whether you've set your mind on him or not. And if you're walking through situations as difficult as they may be, and I know some of you have some very difficult situations, you can still experience the peace of Christ. When I stand up here for the benediction, I say, peace be with you. The peace of Christ go with you, not as the world gives. Peace that passes understanding. And peace, now, notice the verb, it rules. And I want to ask you if the peace of Christ rules. This word in the Greek means umpire. You see, what happens is an active peace. It's not just something that, that just is happens or not happens. It's active. Christ is living in you, and now you have an umpire. And he's saying, I hear that. I see this coming. I understand that thought. You're out of here. We don't think that way anymore. We don't operate that anymore. I'm an umpire. Do you have that working in your life? Or does it feel like you just get overwhelmed from here and here? There's no umpire. It's like this chaos of your life. There's no boundaries. There's no rules. If you set your mind on Christ, you see what happens here? He becomes an umpire. And so when you have this thought, when the birthday candle begins to flame back up, it goes, you're out. We don't think that way here anymore. I wonder if you have that piece. Check your gauge. You only have that if you set your mind on Christ. And you're only able to set your mind on Christ because He has set His eyes on you. Let's pray. Lord, we try to communicate so many things here today that maybe for my friends, they would take away one garment, one piece that you 
would have had them come here, not by accident, to hear, to learn, to think about, to consider. Lord, as we worship in our offering, may we think about the glorious riches that are for us in Christ Jesus. Amen.